Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sidyard. This is the sixth episode of my, I hope, powerful series, Power to Change. So P2C6. In this show, we finally turn the corner from the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 and move to the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to start with, of course, love. Look, it's been so confusing for 2,000 years. What is it? What is this love, right? Would you be surprised to hear that I think most often we get this totally wrong in our heads and often from the pulpit? Uh, and this could be part of the problem with your Christian walk. Matter of fact, this could be the, one of the problems with the Christian church. So you may be working hard, and really, really putting the time in, but really ending up with a different kind of love. In fact, I'm going to suggest that that's one of the main problems with U.S. Christianity. I hope you're curious. Check this out. I think it's a game changer. Like Beyonce says, partner, let me upgrade you. So thanks for listening. We'll get right to it right after a word from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, I want to take this show to speak about love. The Greek word uh, Paul in Paul's list is agape. Most moderns influenced by C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, define agape as being the highest level of love known to humanity, a selfless love, a love that was uh, passionately committed to the well-being of the other. So then agape is generally considered specifically divine-like love. It's selfish, self-sacrificing compared to the other three. There's storge, which we see as affection, phileo, brotherly love, um, eros, sexual love. Uh, Tertullian in the second century said that agape was that love that should be noticeable within the body of Christ. He says, what marks us in the eyes of our enemies is our loving kindness. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. Here's another theologian, O.C. Quick. If we could imagine the love of one who loves men purely for their own sake and not because of any need or desire of his own, purely desires their good and yet loves them wholly, not for what at this moment they are, but what he knows he can make of them because he made them, then we should have it in our minds, some true image of the love of the Father and Creator of mankind. So... I think this is what they're saying. Check out the spectrum. I think this is how they saw it, and and I do believe it's how we see it. Eros, 
would be the most selfish and human, if you will, of the four, then phileo and storge in the, in the middle of the spectrum, and agape would be the far left, the opposite side of the spectrum as eros, and that's the goal, and it requires us to really, really, really love others over ourselves, to, to, to gird our loins, to strain, to choose. We have to lean into it to do agape, because that's God-like love. So it seems right to say that we're supposed to love selflessly and other-oriented, and we need to really put in that effort. But Paul has been arguing that the works of the flesh, which, we, which are ever-present, that motivate us naturally 24-7, even we who are Christians, that it is by nature self-focused. It powers my flesh subconsciously, even after my salvation. So then how do we work against our flesh and do agape? And I'm going to show you a better way of understanding love and our charge. I think this will, like I said, I think is a game changer. But first, let me dispel our current ill-informed notion of the four loves. I, I dealt with this very clearly in my Valentine series this year. Uh, go check it out. You can search for that uh, on Google, uh, Gospel Rant Valentine series one, two, and three. But here's the point. Biblically, the distinctions are not so clean between the variety of loves. And here are some examples of the Greek word agape, but it's used for less than godly love. All right, here's 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved, that's agape, because he agaped the world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Well, that doesn't sound like God-type love. Here's John 12, 43. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved agape praise more than men, more than praise from God. Again, is that right? Here's John three nineteen. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved agape darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And lastly, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves agape, the world, the love agape of the Father is not in him. Uh, By the way, it's also used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to describe Amnon's violent lust for Tamar, his half-sister. My point is that agape was just one of the common words, the Greek words for love, at the time of the New Testament of the Septuagint. The Greeks just didn't have that clear four-part distinction as we modern theologians and Christians have, right? Eros being exclusively sexual, phileo for brotherly love, and agape for God's selfless, higher love. Well, we have to determine what agape is in context. So then in the context of Galatians 5, what is Paul referring to in the fruit of the Spirit as agape? Well, drumroll. Check out this new love spectrum. On the left is God's love, which includes godly, perfect, phileo, storge, uh, and of course, agape. And this might surprise you, even godly eros. So God's agape is selfless, all of those four things. And it includes eros, sex, intimacy, I mean, what do you think was happening in Eden pre-fall before there was sin? Adam and Eve's intimacy, eros, was empowered by perfect love. It was 
Agape, God's agape, and it definitely included eros, godly eros. And again, check my Valentine series on YouTube and podcasts. Search for God's love, Valentine part one through three. But also check out the entire series of the Song of Songs on both YouTube and podcast. It's ridiculously good news, a game changer, particularly to Christianity, which can so often be a bit on the boring side. There is a godly eros accessible a little bit or a lot this side of heaven. You can't just try harder to be selfless because your flesh is working against you to be nicer. Your midbrain is just designed to be self-serving, self-protecting. God could be self-serving, right? He's the one who really could and maybe should be, but he's not. He's wildly other-oriented. His agape, phileo, storge, and eros are other-driven. And here's a quote from one scholar about the love between the king and the queen in the Song of Songs. This is so great. This reflects God's love. This mirrors God's love for Christians. Listen to this. This is fantastic. Uh, this, is, this is what <clears throat> eros, agape, storge, and phileo look like in relationship, human to human, but also God to us. The relationship between the man and the woman is in the first place a reciprocal relationship, one of mutuality and equal participation. The man relates as a man and the woman as a woman with each belonging to and desiring the other. Each addresses the other, delights in the other, and in his or her love. Each takes the initiative and goes out to the other. The man and the woman delight in the attractiveness of the other. Each one claims that the other is beautiful. The man admires the beauty of the woman in a way which points to her distinctive female features. Likewise, the woman admires the man in a way which delights in his maleness. There is no sense of domination of one by the other, no suggestion of priority or of one being the initiator more than the other, there is an equal partnership in this relationship of love. The relationship between the man and the woman in the song, then, is one where each participates equally and mutually as a man or as a woman toward the other. No note of priority or subordination intrudes, except as each is subordinate to the other in love. Man, that's Robin Payne. On the other side of the scale is our love. It is to some degree self-focused, self-serving, and selfish. I mean, not 100% unless you're a sociopath. And by the way, if you're a sociopath, welcome to the show. See, but the point is, this selfishness is not all our fault, our midbrain, our flesh. It's designed that way. It's tainted. It's been beat up. It's self-protective. And that's been Paul's point, talking about the works of the flesh. We should be other-focused. We should give preference to others. We should be subordinate to the well-being. We should subordinate our well-being for the well-being of others. But even as I say it, I mean, doesn't that seem kind of troubling? Hey, what about me is what my midbrain just said. You probably didn't hear it, but that's what it said. The agape in Galatians 5, says Paul, to be perfectly clear, is a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of your flesh, not a fruit of your brain, not a fruit of your choice. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's God-sourced. The agape he is talking about in Galatians 5 is only natural to God's DNA, not yours, not mine. It's God-sourced. It's Spirit-sourced. That's something that happens when you just try harder or try to do something nice for somebody. 
You can ask for it from God. You can open up empty, scarred, and self-serving hands and ask for it. I mean, here's Paul modeling how to do that. The simple and cluttered gospel is modeled after this prayer in Ephesians 3. Paul says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, that's his, he may strengthen you with power, his power, through his spirit, his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ, that's Christ, may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, that's his love, may have power, his power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, his love, right, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ephesians three fourteen to 21. He's asking God for the Ephesians for his power so that they would be able to grasp the height and width and length and depth of the love agape, but that, and I'm suggesting that's a metonymy part for the whole, so that includes agape, storge, phileo, and eros of Jesus. It's not something he's saying, God, give them the awareness to choose. Uh, uh, God, make, uh, uh, encourage them to be selfless. No, he's saying they need power. Uh, so rather receive than choose. So Christian, you have the privilege purchased by Jesus 2,000 years ago to ask for this, to ask for his agape or experience of the agape. You already have it all through Jesus, but to experience it more in a way that motivates you. And it would it'd feel like a rush of his love for you uh, as you are right now. You may be in emotional turmoil. You may feel lonely or depressed or feel sad. So you need this. You may feel lonely. Go for this. You may be struggling with addiction or relapsing or being busted or shame or guilt. Look, again, like Beyonce says, partner, let me upgrade you. Well, this would be a good place uh, to take a break for a word from our sponsors. We will be right back. Let's back up and look at the nature of love. This is so important, um, particularly if right now you're feeling like a failure or a disappointment to God or a lower tier Christian. Um, uh, Addicts feel that way quite a bit, but so do everybody else. Have you become, you feel unlovable by God or other people? Or have you been exposed, some, some uh, dirtiness, some lapse? Well, listen, this is worth the price of admission, Christian. So take a look at this slide. Either love is a function of the subject or a function of the object. All right, let me, let me explain. This is not going to get too f- philosophical. This is so important, so, so hang with me. If it's a function of the object's loveliness, worthiness, status, righteousness, beauty, or the hit it gives me, then love happens within me based upon the object. It's a function of the object. So if God's love is a function of the object, then he loves the righteous. He loves the faithful. He loves the pure. He loves the religious successful. All right, you get the idea. And the moral is that if if that's true, then if only I was a better person, a better Christian, if I worked harder, if I prayed more, if I tithed more, if only I hadn't screwed up before or that bad thing happened to me that traumatized me, that made me this way, well, then God might love me more. He might really love me. And so this love is conditional. 
conditional upon the object's worthiness and lovability and beauty. Enoughness, I've used in other, in other shows. Or, love is a function of the subject. And this is where most of Christian teaching leans. God is love, and that love loves the objects unconditionally. It doesn't matter whether they're pure or impure or good or bad or lovely or not lovely. God's love is a function of him, the subject. So he loves to screw it up, the faulty, the unfaithful, because that's his nature. That's the nature of his agape, his heavenly God-sourced agape. And we're supposed to do that too, meaning love the object because that's what we do, whether or not the object is attractive, not because uh, something about the object that elicits a loving response. Love is supposed to be, this higher love, agape love, is supposed to be un. Conditional. So, from most pulpits, you will hear, choose to love others. Uh, love sinners be- with this love of Christ. So, so, just keep doing that. And that assumes that your love is unconditional. But how's that gone for us? Well, <laughs> I'm going to take a different stand. Here's my proposition, this, this, uh, this show, and check it out. All love. All love, all love is a function of the object. Number one, all love is conditional. It's the nature of love. Hang with me. If the object is beautiful, attractive, glorious, lovable, righteous, um, and that love naturally is triggered within the subject, all other things equal, God and, and we image bearers of God. And if the object is ugly, if it's unattractive, if it's dishonorable, if it's mean, if it's dishonoring, if it's unlovable, if it's unloving in response, if it's rude, then the opposite reaction, the natural reaction is, I wouldn't love them, naturally. So example, if you took to the road in Colorado in the fall and went to see some of the beautiful aspens. I mean, it's spectacular, by the way. Your natural reaction would be, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. And it would bubble up out of you. <clears throat> and you would feel like you're in the presence of something worthy and special. You would express that emotion similar to love and amazement, right? But let me focus on Denver. If you took the always busy and crazy and clogged north-south I-25 through Denver. You get caught up in all the construction and dust and traffic, and, and you just saw bumpers in front of you for hours, and horns are blaring, and people waving a finger at you. You know, you're not naturally going to bubble up love, right? That's, that's not going to be your response, and that's normal humanity. And why? I mean, are you broken? Are you just... Small? Well, maybe. That's a topic for your counselor. But my point is that this is the nature of all love, God's love included. God's love is a function of the object, or to put it differently, in spite of what you heard before, God's love is conditional. In fact, it's perfectly conditional because he's perfect, and it's conditional upon the object's perfection. It's lovability. There's no such thing as unconditional love. It's a bumper sticker for us, but I think it's been confusing and it's been misapplied. This is really, really, really good news for us because we're not perfect. We know it, right? And I get it. You've heard the opposite for so long. It's going to be difficult to embrace. You might have to kick this over. I'm not done. Stay with me. There has been a great deal of imprecise 
Ah, faulty teaching on this. There is a popular romantic notion that God's love is some kind of different character, different kind of substance than mine. But again, that makes a problem for me. His love is taught as to be a function of the subject, him from his heart. God's So God's love is in his nature. And so he just only loves any object, whether it's worthy or not. God's love is bigger than the unloveliness of the object. So God agape the unlovely world so much that he gave his only son. That's how it's taught. So God loves the unlovable, rebellious, enemy world. And so we must do the same. Just choose to do it, right? Just work against your flesh and do it. So we agape in the same way. Well, a couple of problems. First, if God's love naturally perfectly loves unlovable objects, then that would lead to universalism. And you might hold that, but I don't think the Bible does. If God loves the imperfect, then God loves everybody because we're all imperfect, right? This just follows. Second, if God perfectly loved unlovable objects unconditionally, then why did Jesus have to die? If God's love covered that already, why did Jesus have to suffer on the cross? What were the What would the statement mean? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Romans 5.10. So if God's love is a function of the subject, him, from his heart, then God loves just because he loves. He cannot not love everyone the same. His love would be pure and consistent, and therefore he loves all things equally, Everybody, saved or unsaved? Or if God's love is a function of the object, then God only loves perfection perfectly and hates imperfection perfectly. And that's the great news. Hang with me. For naturally unlovable objects like big sinners, like failures, like addicts, like imperfect Christians, and we're all imperfect. All right, two aspects of the gospel are critical here. First, Jesus died on the cross and needed to in order to legally wipe away all of my unloveliness, all of my shame and guilt, all of my record of unrighteousness, my sin. Uh, These are things that make me unlovable, just naturally, and glorious, unattractive uh, to perfect love, self-centered. One fell swoop, those things were washed away. I did nothing perfectly lovable, not even close, nothing righteous to make this happen. It was put upon me. Uh, actually, it occurred long before I was even born. But there was a second thing that happened on the cross. Jesus was perfectly lovable. He did everything right. He was a glorious human being, and it was perfectly lovable by God's love. God's love responded, if you will, humanly speaking, to the perfection of Jesus and poured out without measure over him, his love. Everyone following me so far? But then something stunning happened. Jesus' rightness, his beauty, his attractiveness, his perfect record is now imputed to me. Big theological concept. It's put into my biography. And so basically, God's love responds now to me. Again, I'm speaking humanly, just the way it naturally responded to Jesus before, right? It makes sense that God the Father would love the Son. After all, he was right. He did everything perfectly. Me, I didn't and don't. But in the miracle of this double imputation, theologians call it, I get what I didn't deserve. I get what Jesus earned. I get the love and devotion that he accomplished. He got the curse and despising on the cross that I earned. 
is stunning. It's unbelievable. And that's the deal. So here's a way to imagine it simply. There are issues with the image, but maybe it helps bring home to us. Imagine being a cracked, scarred, marked up, ugly cup, empty, leaky, selfish, riddled with shame, right? Something's wrong with me, guilt, I've done something wrong, desperately looking for filling anywhere and everywhere, looking for love in all the wrong places. And if water, uh, love is poured into it, it just leaks out and it's empty. It's broken, not feeling uh, enough to be loved by others or God. And why? Because that's how the cup's been treated. That's how the cup feels towards itself. But then Jesus. Imagine now a pitcher of living water, full. I can lower the cracked, ugly cup into it, and it is immersed in that water, external water, as it is. I haven't done anything to the cup. It's now full, full of the fullness of the pitcher right? As it is. And not with its own fullness, but with the fullness of the picture, right? Jesus. Jesus is righteousness. It's now yours too, Christian. And it's totally unfair, of course. You got what you did not deserve. Christ got what he did not deserve, all for love. Love do a perfect cup, right? So now let's face it. We don't feel that all the time, though we're immersed in the love of God. Our flesh has a hard time realizing it. Often we still feel unloved by God, right? It's not true, but that's how we feel. And so we fall back to our natural state and use people to get a little bit of of enoughness and connectedness. Glory, value, worth, significant security, belonging. But then the natural works of the flesh kick in and we deal with people selfishly because we need to leverage them to feel enoughness and connectedness. It doesn't work. It can't add to the fullness, but it's our natural MO. It's habit. So I need the power of God, Ephesians 3, to make me get that I'm immersed in this love because I'm cynical, beat up, betrayed, and overlooked. That's how I feel. So I need power from God today to make his aspect of new creation real to my deceased decision-making complex. Remember DDMK from the past show? By faith, I can access a little or a lot the present experience of the love of God that Jesus purchased and is now incontrovertibly mine. Right? And that changes things. My cup is filled. And by faith, by means of God's power, through asking, me asking, it's not my power. It feels, I feel loved for a moment. I no longer feel desperate to get hits from other sources for a moment. I access the power that comes from God so that I can experience right now the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for me that he purchased 2,000 years ago. Changes my attitude, my motivation, my persona, my identity, puts me on a different vector. That same love makes me for a moment feel God's love for others, particularly those that he loves, that Jesus died for. It should be noticeable, I would think. That should change things in the body of Christ. There should be a noticeable diminishment of my powers of divisiveness, right? Galatians 5, the works of the flesh, bickering, using, manipulating, gossip, critical spirit. It could make uh, addicts jonesing for a hit or looking for a mask to cover that old intractable wound or injustice a little less overwhelming for the addict. They could make different choices where right now they can't. Right? As long as we keep asking for power to experience the immersion into this love, 
this being connected and enough today because of what Jesus did, it should be noticeable even outside the body. They will indeed know that you're a Christian by such a love. Key concept. This agape that we're talking about in Galatians 5 is not the work of some muscle group that you can develop and exercise. It's not a function of a choice of the will. It's not a function of what's been done to you or not done to you. It's not directly. It's a derivative of the work of Christ accomplished on your behalf. First John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another for this love comes from God. So good news. One, this love is God sourced, not something you gin up. Two, Love is a function of the object. (laughs) Such good news. Since Christ is the object of God's love, I can never, ever doubt God's perfect, unhesitating love for me. If love was a function of the subject, I may never be sure. So I said that I would put a simple tool in your hand, biblical and relevant and scientifically helpful. Here it is. Say it aloud, word for word, twice a day, 45 days, Uh, More than twice a day, if you're struggling with shame or guilt or addiction or relapsing, uh, brokenness, loneliness, sadness, say it four or five times a day. Just keep saying it aloud, word for word. And no shame, I've got your back. I believe in you. Or better, I believe in his spirit in you because I know him. Sit back, just listen to this. Or even better, say it aloud with me. Jesus followers, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Uh Uh-uh, not so. Thank God. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Not by trying harder. Not by choosing to do more good or choosing to love other people. All those things are good, but that's not how you experience it more now. Here it is. Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you. Wow. To make you. Make you know. Not help you. Make you know. Experience and feel just how much God loves you right now. That should be noticeable, right? In your part, just ask, ask again later today, ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. And remember, say this simple, uncluttered gospel twice a day for 45 days. Let me know what you think, what's happening. Bill at gospel-app.com is going to take some time. I've got that. I hear testimony. Some people, four days, could be three weeks for others. Drip, drip, drip. Good news for your midbrain. We're pushing against your subconscious. It's a habit to be able to grab hold, uh, to realize that this love is actually yours and to experience it, not because of anything you do or uh, have done or has been done to you twice a day, 45 days. Keep me informed. I'd love to post the testimonies, if you don't mind, on the webpage. You can get the Simple Uncluttered Gospel in bookmark form from the gospelrant.com, gospel-app.com. Get a bunch of them. Uh, Put them all over your home. Give them to your church, your home group, your family, your friends. Uh, If you're an addict, your 12-step group, they will thank you. I am writing a book on the overlooked and underappreciated women of the Old Testament. It's fascinating. A must-read. If you want to know when it's published, get on the list. Bill at gospel-app.com will let you know. Also, please follow this podcast. It really is important to us. 
Uh, you'd be surprised. Pass the word along to friends and family as well. Put it on social media. Email them. Give them a call. It can make a huge difference. And by the way, if you're an addict, stay in your 12-step group. Stay in counseling. But just use these tips in parallel to all of that. And keep listening. Take heart, child of God. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.